Today, as you just saw in the video, uh, we get to begin our brand new Christmas uh, sermon series. And uh, this year we're taking a, a little bit of a, a unique uh, approach to the story of Christmas. Because, you know, sometimes uh, we get so uh, zeroed in, so, so uh, zoomed in on uh, Jesus in the manger and the uh, cuddly baby that we see there, uh, that we lose sight of the whole story, the bigger picture. And... Uh, we don't uh, worship a sweet little baby Jesus anymore. Uh, we worship the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ who sits on the throne right now mediating on our behalf. Amen? Amen. That's who we worship. And we don't want to lose sight of the whole marvelous, redemptive story this year. So over the next five Sundays, uh, we're seeking to behold the glory of the grand story of Jesus Christ. So this week and, and next week, really, uh, we're actually going to start by taking a look back. We're going to go back into the Old Testament. Nothing says Christmas like a little bit of Old Testament for you, right? And so today we're going to uh, see the story begin with a promise. A promise. So you see, all throughout the Old Testament, God promises to send a Messiah, a Savior. It's all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, I'll say it this way. He gives us whiffs of the aroma of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't actually tell us the source of that pleasing aroma. And that's today. Next Sunday, uh, we're gonna see how the story fulfills a prophecy. Uh, God doesn't just give us a grand promise. He gives us a grand prophecy that narrows in our focus on a particular individual. And so if, if the promise is the whiff of the aroma of a savior, then the prophecy is the path leading us to the source of that pleasing aroma. That's next week. Uh, then on week three of the series, in December 19th, uh, we're gonna shift our attention and our focus from the Old Testament and, and come into the, the, the New Testament. And uh, we're gonna see the announcement of God's plan for salvation. You know, God, uh, through the Holy Spirit, there were uh, men and women who uh, announced, and also there, the angels themselves announced the uh, coming Savior. And these heralds were saying, hey, hey, listen up, everybody. The one who's been promised for centuries, the one who's been prophesied about for centuries, yeah, that one, he's coming. Be ready. Don't fall asleep. And then for our Christmas Eve services, we're going to see that the time has come. The arrival of our glorious Savior. Born in a manger. The King of Kings, the Son of David, came in the humblest of ways. And we're just going to spend some time seeing him. Savoring him. Beholding him. And then as I mentioned... Jesus doesn't stay that way. He doesn't stay a baby. And so for the final uh, sermon in this series on December 26th, we're going to look ahead. We're going to look into the, to the future, what hasn't happened uh, yet in terms of, of Christ's return. And we're going to see the unshakable and everlasting reign of our Jesus Christ. Uh, he established his uh, everlasting kingdom and he is reigning on the throne right now. And one day, he's coming back, and he's going to destroy all the opposition, 
And he's going to redeem us once and for all, his bride, the church, all those who are redeemed in Jesus Christ. Yeah, we want to spend some time on that one. Praise the Lord and hallelujah. So you getting excited about this, uh, this sermon series? If you can't tell, we are. And uh, so God, do a work. Uh, we, we pray, God, would you work over this next month in ways that you haven't worked previously in this church and in each one of us. Oh God, would we behold your glory like never before. You amaze us, God. You stun us. Now continue to whet our appetite for you. Be with us this morning as we dive in to your word. Help us to see you and behold you in the Old Testament this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, uh, this is the first week of our Christmas series, and uh, we want to behold the glory of the promise. And th- this means that we're going to take a look back into the, the Old Testament to see the promise. And it is interwoven, this promise, all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, think about the uh, Harry Potter movies, if you've seen those before. You know, each movie is slowly, methodically moving and building toward that climactic battle, uh, that epic battle of good versus evil that we see in the last movie. But then, go back. Go back and and re-watch all of the movies again from the beginning. And what do you see this time? Start to see some things you didn't see before. You see all the subtle details that didn't make much sense at first, but now that you know how it all ends you start to see some of the clues, the foreshadowing, the linkages of events in that storyline. And in many ways, that's what we're doing today and and some of of next Sunday as well. See, we we know how it all ends. God has told us that. We know that, that God's story climaxes in Jesus Christ. So now we get to go back to look and see in the Old Testament the foreshadowing, the little whiffs, of the aroma of Jesus Christ. So we're gonna look at uh, three different aspects of the promise today. I actually had a a difficult time this week when I was preparing this sermon because uh, there's so many uh, passages that could be fitting for this today. And so I had to narrow it down. Instead of looking at all of them, we'd be here all day, probably here till Christmas. Uh, I had to narrow them down to three. So we're gonna look at three aspects of the promise. It's the same promise, but three different angles, okay? Now, where do you think we should start? Where would be a good place to start? I heard some whispers, don't be shy. Genesis, that's a great place. How about we start at the beginning of redemptive history? So if you have your Bibles, please turn uh, to Genesis chapter three. Genesis uh, chapter three. What we see in Genesis chapters uh, one and two is that God creates the heavens and uh, the earth from nothing. And then he uh, plants a garden. He calls it Eden. And it literally means a garden of pleasure. And then he he, uh, places Adam and Eve, who are made in his image there, to to tend the garden, to enjoy it. He created marriage so they get to enjoy one another in in marriage as one flesh. And oh, by the way, uh, the best thing of all is that they have unfettered access and intimacy with the Lord. It's perfection, it's paradise. And then we come to chapter three. And we're going to see that there's trouble in paradise. So chapter three, verse one, this is what the word of the Lord says. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, did God really, really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Uh, But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. It's difficult to see this in our... um, our, our translations here, but in the, in the Hebrew text, uh, you go back and look at what God really said in chapter 2 to Adam. He says, you will surely die. And, and here, what the serpent does is he quotes God verbatim, except he adds one little word, not. And he fronts it. He puts it at the very beginning of his statement there. He's trying to to emphasize uh, what he's saying and uh, de-emphasize what God had said. Very deceptive. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so here we we have uh, this text, uh, this talking serpent comes onto the scene. He approaches the woman who we know uh, later, she hasn't been named yet, but uh, we know her to be Eve. He approaches her and he, he, he begins a dialogue. And in that dialogue, he suggests that God is a stingy liar. And that God's ultimately not good. He's holding out on him. What's so very interesting about this is we're told in Genesis 1 uh, that, that Adam and Eve and all of humanity after them were made in the image of God and his likeness. They are more like God before sin than they are after sin. But that's not what the serpent's uh, uh, main thing is here. What he's saying is, that's not enough. He's saying that, uh, this, that they will be equal with God if you eat this fruit. Equality with God is better than made in his image. That's what the serpent is saying. And they'll no longer need God. Because they will be self-sustaining. Fully autonomous. Now, now look at, at what the woman does here in response to this here in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So overcome by her doubt of God's goodness and overcome by her own uh, desire to be equal with God, she took the fruit and ate it. And she gave it to her husband, who was with her, Adam. I actually believe that Adam was with her the entire time. Uh, some some uh, would disagree with that. But I think in the context of this, I believe that Adam is, is with her during that whole confrontation uh, between the serpent and with Eve. And what Adam should have done is he should have crushed the serpent. Should have protected his wife. should have protected us but he didn't do it hold on to that hold on to that because of what we're going to see here in just a moment okay and then in their shame they they try to hide it with fig leaves as clothing now let's see how God responds to this verse 8 and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So when Adam and Eve heard the presence of God in the, in the garden, they foolishly tried to run from his presence and hide among the trees and uh, couldn't help but be reminded of how often did we foolishly as children run and hide from our parents thinking we could keep the sin from them and they would never know about it. Sometimes I literally remember thinking that God must be audibly talking to my mom and dad because they know so much. <laughs> What's really cool, though, about what happens here is that God pursues them. God calls out to them. He, he asked them a series of questions, not because he didn't know what was going on, he knew fully what was going on, but because questions show compassion and care. Questions prick the conscience, accusations harden the heart. And he's trying to draw out their hearts so they might see What's happened? And I think it's important for us to note that our God is a pursuing, grace-giving God. And God pursues the people who are made in his image. And if you're here and you're in Christ, then your salvation is only because God pursued you. And if you're here and you're not in Christ, might God be pursuing you today? Well, let's look at what the Lord says here to the serpent. Um, it's very important what happens next. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God pronounces a, a divine curse on the serpent. And the serpent has to, uh, must crawl around on his belly and lick the dust all the days of his life. And, and then God says he's going to put hostility and opposition between the serpent and the woman and between uh, his offspring and her offspring. And what's going on here is actually much, much deeper and much more important than God just saying, hey, you know what? Uh, the rest of humanity is going to hate the snake species. Just, just want you to be aware of that serpent. There's a lot more going on, a lot more at stake here in, in God's words. God is promising that the woman's offspring will bruise, or, or more correctly, um, more vividly, crush the serpent's head. And the serpent will bruise the woman's offspring, uh, the woman's son's heel. The word offspring here can either be plural or singular based upon the context. But notice, I don't want to get too technical here, but notice here in verse 15 that God uses the third person masculine singular pronoun, he, referring to the serpent and the offspring. It says, he shall bruise your head, he shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This 
must mean that God has in mind a singular male offspring, one particular man who will deal the crushing blow to the serpent. So uh, here we have God promising that at some point in the future, a son from Eve's line will rise up and crush the head of the serpent. And so whereas as Adam uh, failed in his role to protect Eve and the rest of humanity by crushing the serpent, here God is promising that he will bring a better Adam, a savior who will come and crush the head of the serpent. Isn't God's word so cool? My <laughs> scripture here is inviting us to behold the glory of the promised serpent crusher. It's just given us a whiff of Jesus. Immediately after committing the first sin against God, Yahweh pursues them and gives them grace by promising a serpent crusher will come. And at this point in the promise, at this point in redemptive history, which is, by the way, this is the very beginning of redemptive history, uh, we, we don't know who that is. The serpent crusher could be just about uh, anyone because Eve is the matriarch of all humanity. We just know at this point it's going to be a male. It'll be a son. And what we do see throughout the rest of the book of Genesis is that everywhere, everywhere we look in the book of Genesis, the woman's offspring appears to be in jeopardy. There's hostility after hostility that threatens to wipe out Eve's lineage. And we keep moving forward in time and the hostility intensifies when we see that the promised serpent crusher is born. A serpent who, right here in this, in this text here, we don't know that this is Satan. We have to find that out later in scripture uh, we, we find out later that this serpent is Satan. And uh, Satan was never more active than when the real, the actual serpent crusher came and was born. And have you ever wondered why there was such a strong concentration of demonic activity during Jesus' earthly ministry? And then we, we see that the serpent eventually bruises the heel of the serpent crusher with the cross. But then our Savior is resurrected and he deals a crushing blow to the head of the serpent. And one day he will deal the final blow and that will come when our serpent crusher returns on a white horse and throws that ancient serpent into the eternal lake of fire. Amen, right? So my question here for us is, are you beholding the glory of the promised serpent crusher? So right here, third chapter of the first book of the Bible, and God's already promised a deliverer, the good God. Now, let's trace this through the Old Testament a little bit. Let's move forward uh, in time to the days of Moses, and let's look at a second aspect of the promise. Uh, If you would please turn to the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Old Testament, Uh, The book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Most of you probably did not wake up this morning and say, that preacher is going to preach us a Christmas story from Deuteronomy. (laughs) 
What we see at this juncture of redemptive history is uh, that God's promise of a serpent crusher has, has narrowed a little bit. Now we know that the, the lineage of, of, through Eve is going to come through the, the nation of Israel. But that's all we know at this point. And, uh, Deuteronomy is one of my favorite books in the entire Old Testament. And the reason for that is, is uh, what, what we've had happen is, is Israel's been just wandering for 40 years because of their breaking the covenant, the relational covenant with God on, uh, after Mount Sinai for 40 years. And now God has them on the east side of the Jordan River and they're preparing to enter the promised land. And before they do, God renews the covenant with them. And the heart of this covenant that we see in the book of Deuteronomy is, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And yet God ultimately says, you're not going to be able to do that, Israel, because you still have stubborn hearts. You don't have ears to hear, eyes to see. But don't worry, because I will circumcise your hearts so that you can worship me with every fiber of your being. That's all in the book of Deuteronomy. That's almost enough of the promise right there for us to move on. But then we come to this nugget here in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy uh, chapter uh, 18, verse 15 says this. This is Moses speaking to the people of Israel. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And it's to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Oreb, that's another name for Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. What Moses is, is saying here is that the Lord will raise up for Israel another prophet like him. And the people would actually listen to him, which is a little ironic uh, uh, because Israel rarely listened to Moses himself. And then Moses reminds the people that because of God's holiness, God's glory, uh, that he manifested to them on Mount Sinai, and because of, of their sinfulness, they need a mediator between them and God. And God raised up Moses to do that for them. And, and Moses is saying, hey, uh, by the way, you're going to need another mediator, another prophet like me to continue mediating between you and the Lord your God. And God is, is promising to do that exact thing, that he will raise up for the people another prophet like Moses from among them who will mediate between them and God. Huh, I wonder who that is. Only we get the sense from this passage that this prophet will be greater. God says that he will put his words in the mouth of this prophet and he will speak all that God commands him. And while Moses did that some of the time or most of the time, he didn't speak all that God commanded all the time because Moses was prone to sin. And the idea that we, we get here is that this promised greater prophet will obey God perfectly and speak exactly all that God required of him to the people, that he would be the ideal Moses a perfect prophetic mediator between the people and God. Friends, we need to behold 
the glory of the promised greater prophet. And God says here in this text that whoever will not listen to this greater prophet, God's judgment will fall on them. He will hold them accountable. The question then is, who is this prophet? Who is this greater prophet? Well, look at verse 20. The Lord is still speaking here. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. That's all God gives us here. He just gives us a, a general idea of, of what to look for. And yes, you could say that, that this uh, criteria here that the Lord gives applies to any of the, the prophets that God raises up for Israel after Moses. Yes, you could say that, but God already handled that in another part of the law. And in this specific context, he's saying it as it relates to this prophet like Moses. We can't escape the reality that God's promising to raise another prophet like Moses from a single figure. One man. There's something that's very interesting and cool uh, that happens at the end of Moses' life. The author of of Deuteronomy adds a very interesting statement about uh, the prophets that came after Moses. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34, you can turn there, or I have it up on the screen here. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 34, uh, it's important for us to grab a hold of this here. Look at uh, verse 10. And there has not arisen a prophet since, since, in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. See what this text is saying? There has not arisen a prophet since Moses that is like him. So that would mean not David, not Elijah, not Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of the minor prophets. In fact, we see that Israel came to understand the promise of a greater prophet from this text here to be the promise of a messianic savior. And then we come to uh, John chapter one and John the baptizer is on the scene. And what do the Jewish leaders come up to John and ask him? Are you the prophet? And of course he says, no, I'm not. Even uh, uh, later on in the New Testament, it quotes this Deuteronomy 18 passage and applies it to Jesus. It's Acts chapter three, if you want to go take a look at that. Then you come into the book of Hebrews and it says that Jesus is a greater Moses. Here, in this Deuteronomy 18 passage, God is just giving us a whiff of the aroma of Jesus. He's promising a greater mediating prophet. So let me ask you this. Are you listening to this greater prophet? Because 
Because God's going to hold us accountable. Now, I'd like for us to take one more look uh, at the promise. One more aspect, uh, a third aspect of the promise that we should behold uh, this morning. So let's move forward again in time and uh, come into the life of David. Um, 2 Samuel, if you have your Bibles, please turn over there. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, David is someone that we've become very familiar with uh, over the course of this year and the life of this church. If you've been here, we went through uh, 1 Samuel earlier this year, and we just wrapped up last week the book of uh, 2 Samuel. So we, we've come to know David quite a bit and uh, we covered 2 Samuel chapter 7 earlier in the fall, but I want to go back and grab a, a few nuggets out of it because there's a promise in that. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, God is speaking through the prophet Nathan, who is not a prophet like Moses, by the way. He's speaking through the prophet Nathan to David, and this is what the Lord says, Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, a dynasty. Before this, David had wanted to uh, make a house for the Lord, and the Lord's saying, No, not you. I'm going to make you a house. And God reminds David here that he's been with him thus far in his life. How encouraging. If you're here right now and you're in Christ, you're here right now in Christ because God has been with you. Even if you can't fill him. And God promises to make David's name great. To give Israel and David rest from their enemies. And to make a house, a dynasty for David. Now look at uh, uh, verse 12 as God continues here. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God here is uh, explaining uh, how he's going to make a dynasty for David. He's, after David dies, he's going to raise up a, an offspring after him. And God will establish this son's kingdom the son will build a house for the Lord and God will establish uh, the son's throne forever and it will be an everlasting kingdom. That's what God is promising here uh, to uh, David. Now, as we read through this, there's, there's a sense of both a, a near-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment in this promise. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, in the near-term fulfillment, what we see is that after David dies, Solomon, his son, ascends the throne and what Solomon does is he builds a house, a, an amazing, magnificent 
uh, house before the, uh, for the Lord to dwell in, and manifestly so. And then for a time, Israel and Solomon even get temporary rest from their enemies. It's a, it's a time of, of, of peace in the kingdom. And you start to think, hey, is this, is this God's promise fully realized? But it was short-lived because later on in life, Solomon uh, disobeys the Lord. He turns away from the Lord and worships idols. And, and you get the sense of like, no, this isn't it. This isn't the full promise fulfilled and so there's a, a long-term uh, promise, um, fulfillment, fulfillment to this promise. And uh, David and the prophets after him even understood this promise here to mean that God would bring a messianic king through David's lineage. And this Messiah would be called uh, the son of David. The term son of David came to be known as a term for the Messiah. And the Messiah would come and save Israel once and for all, establish a new covenant promise and bring permanent peace to the chaos. And he would accomplish what Israel failed to do. And he would be an everlasting king reigning forever in splendor and majesty. And we need to behold the glory of this promised everlasting king. Just giving us a whiff. Just a whiff. This everlasting king would also have a father-son relationship, by the way, with God. Only this everlasting king would never commit a sin and therefore never need to incur God's discipline. In fact, the New Testament goes on uh, to quote verse 14 here. I will be to him a father and he shall be uh, to me a son. It quotes that and it applies it to God the father and God the son. And this son of David would perfectly obey the law, something that Israel couldn't do, and something the, the other kings, the other sons of David didn't do. So who is this everlasting king? Well, at this point in redemptive history, we know that he is uh, the promised serpent crusher, the greater prophet, and the eternal son of David. But that's it. God's wetting our appetite. For the one who would come, born in a manger, die on a cross, rise up on the third day, ascend to glory, come back for us one day, and take us home with him. I hope your appetite is whetted just a little bit. How, do, how should we finish this? What should we do with this? Well, the name of our, our sermon series is Behold the Glory. Might I suggest that we do just that? Let's just behold the glory. Let's be amazed of who our Savior is. Friends, the Lord's purposes and promises are never thwarted. What he promised thousands of years ago in Genesis chapter 3, he's brought to fruition. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-controlling, and he has orchestrated every single event to bring about his promise. So the Christmas uh, story is more than a manger scene with a sweet, cuddly baby. It's more than gifts on a tree or, or lights strung up on a house. It's about a divine story of redemption 
where the ultimate gift of salvation is freely offered to all who believe. It's a story that began with a divine promise. And oh, by the way, the Bible says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And at this point in the Old Testament, who would have thought that the serpent crusher, this greater prophet, this everlasting king would come through a manger? Only God. Only God. Behold the glory. The light of the world has come. And so God, thank you. Thank you, Father, for what you have done and been doing all throughout redemptive history. You have uh, promised to bring a, a serpent crusher whom we now know to be Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that you've given us someone who is a second Adam that's better and, and, and did what the first Adam didn't do. Thank you for, for sending uh, the greater prophet in Jesus. He's like Moses, but better than Moses. He spoke all that you commanded him. He went to the cross. Now he's inviting us into his promised land. Thank you for the promise of the everlasting king. That's who we serve. Jesus Christ, the king of kings and lord of lords. And only you could have brought such a wonderful, glorious uh, uh, climax to your story that you have written and was written even before the foundation of the world. And so we worship you, God. We thank you. You are awesome. We are not. We serve the one who is awesome. Thank you for the work of redemption that you have done and you are doing in the lives that are being saved today. Oh, might we behold you more and more this Christmas season. We love you, Father. We love you, Jesus. In Christ's name.